Good morning and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County and our topic today is one of the most notorious criminal cases in Rockland history, the Cleary Newman murder from 1914. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for original documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blauvelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and we're a newly designated New York State Path Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland with the people of Rockland. I'd just like to note that today marks the fifth anniversary of this program. Our first broadcast was October 2010, and we've been on every month uh, exploring the history of our community and sharing it here on WRCR. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Carrie Potter and Steve Pozell for helping us to make this show happen. If you like the show, please let us know by becoming a member of the Historical Society. We rely on financial support from memberships and from donations from people just like you. You can visit our website at rocklandhistory.org to learn more. Well, there's little doubt that one of the most scandalous events in the 20th century here in Rockland was the Cleary-Newman murder. And few people know more about it than my guest today. By phone, we're welcoming Eugene Newman, and he is the grandnephew of Gene Newman, the victim in the case. Welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History, Gene, and thanks for being a part of our show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Your interest in the case actually was peaked after you left Rockland County, right? Well, yes. I grew up in Rockland County, in Nyack and Haverstraw. I moved to Chicago in 1979 for graduate school and just decided to stay. All this time, I knew nothing about this case because it was something that just was not discussed. More or less a case of let sleeping dogs lie, However, sleeping dogs do have a way of waking up unexpectedly, and that happened in this case. A few years after I moved to Chicago, out of the blue, I received in the mail a copy of a New York Daily News article that recounted the murder of Eugene Newman. Now, I'm Eugene Newman, so that was quite an experience. It was part of a series on historical crime stories that the Daily News was doing, So it was a short summary of it, and naturally I decided I really had to learn as much about this as I could. I went to my college library because my parents didn't really know much more about it than I did, uh, what they claimed, and probably did not. I researched the New York Times archives at the library, which was all on microfilm Mm -hmm. back in those days, and I discovered this incredible tale. You're still in Chicago, correct? Yes, i am got my roots here in Chicago. Worked as a high school English teacher and retired from that a year ago. I'm still living in Chicago. So let's set the stage and talk a little bit about the important people involved in the case. First, your great uncle, Gene Newman. Tell us a little bit about him. Okay, well, he was 18 years old at the time he was killed, so he would be born in 1896 graduated from Haverstraw High School. He was the son of the newspaper publisher, Fred Newman, a fairly prominent family around Haverstraw. Kind of a free spirit from what I'm told, Um, not really 
decisive about what he wanted to do with his life, but he was like you know most eighteen year olds in in process of figuring those things out. Mm-hmm. So his father, Frederick Newman, as you said, was the editor and part owner of the Rockland Messenger. Is that right? that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And the perpetrator in this case, the man who committed the murder, was William V. Cleary. Tell us a, a little bit about him. Right. He was known as Boss Cleary, or the big fella. His official position was town clerk of Haverstraw, but he was really the boss of the political organization the equivalent of what you read and hear about of the Boss Tweed type of character Mm -hmm. in that Tammany Hall era in New York. So he was that. He was all of that in in Rockland County. So the families, the Newmans and the Clearys, had a lengthy friendship, didn't they? Yes, they did, by all accounts. They were associates. They were friends. They were both staunch Democrats, part of the, the Democratic organization. It was 1900 when Cleary became boss in Haverstraw. A short time after that, Fred Newman took control of the Haverstraw Messenger, which was affiliated with the Democratic Party, as most newspapers were affiliated with one party or another. So this, these associations led, and the fact that they, they had the two children who were close in age, the boy Gene and and uh, Cleary's daughter, Anna, were friends all through childhood, one of these childhood sweetheart things that became quite a bit something more. Uh, The friendship between the families, including the budding romance between Gene Newman and Anna Cleary, it changed around 1906. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened then? Right. Well, this huge thing happened in 1906, which was a landslide. The riverbank was used for the, the huge industry of, of brick-making, um, which was you know, one of the biggest industries up and down the Atlantic coast. And the landslide was, it was found to have been basically caused by negligent over-digging of the clay underneath, which caused this landslide, which ruined quite a number of homes of people who were not really well off that, that had the homes down near the river. About 20 people were killed. Um, There were lawsuits and a lot of money, cost a lot of money. number of probably most of the brickyards uh, went out of business. And Fred Newman, as uh, head of the newspaper, apparently saw and identified with the plight of of those uh, who lost their homes and took their side. Cleary was staunchly associated, apparently, with the owners of the brickyards. And so this is the best explanation I could come up with as to why a rift grew, grew between them. Somewhat speculative, but either for that or for other reasons, there, there was this rift. And this affected the relationship between Anna Cleary and Gene Newman. The, well, the yeah, young, obviously youngsters. it would, and yeah. especially in those days when parents had much more of a controlling interest over their, their children's affairs than they do now. And so Cleary and his wife, they spring into action and take an apartment in Manhattan for their daughter, um, at least in part to, to get her away from their boyfriend, although apparently Cleary had 
business and political associates in Manhattan as well, and he was splitting his time between the two places. So the two young people were really were in love, and they, they weren't able to be kept apart. Isn't that right? Right, right. It's really a Romeo and Juliet kind of story. They're writing letters to each other, seeing each other on the sly when they can. Jean's father, Fred, apparently had no objections. Anna was a brilliant girl. That's his quote, one of his quotes. Would have been happy to welcome her into the family. But Cleary and and his wife had the opposite point of view on, on the relationship. And they they had more power. Jean Newman was 18, and Anna was about 20 years old. She became pregnant and hid the pregnancy. What happened after that? Okay. Well, this is all from testimony at, mm-hmm. at the murder trial and interviews around the murder trial. Mm-hmm. So second and, and third hand information. Uh, it really is mysterious, the, the tale of, of the pregnancy. All, all we really know is that the claim was that uh, she became pregnant shortly after uh, she was sent away because of illness, which was you know, done at the time, and to deal with an unwed pregnancy, came back. There is also a big mystery as to how much her parents knew or didn't know about the pregnancy, and that was highly germane to the trial. There's also documentation that Jean and Anna secretly married at uh, yeah, this time. Yeah, that is documented. Mm-hmm. They eloped across the river to New Jersey, to uh, Weehawken, and, and did get married. They, they even had a, uh, a minister, I think it was supposed to be a Baptist minister. And this is just a, a couple of days before the, the murder happened, which was July 23rd of uh, 1914. They come back, Anna goes to see her parents, Jean goes, I think, to, to see his father, and... Upon hearing of Anna's pregnancy, William is said to have taken a train down to Manhattan and went on a uh, terrible drinking binge and became extremely unstable. And either out of that emotional state, crime of passion, or with some kind of a plan, came back and and the next day he shot Gene Newman in, in his own office. And on that day, July 23rd, when, he, when that did happen, based on the transcripts from the trial, wasn't Gene Newman trying to, what one would think, do the right thing by going to Mr. Cleary and, and saying, you know, I, I've married your daughter, and this is, you know, wasn't he really trying to ingratiate himself with Mr. Cleary? Well, absolutely. He was trying to win uh, William Cleary's blessing. He had the document, the, the marriage license, with him. when He went into Cleary's office on the afternoon of, of July 23rd, 1914. After having taken the train up from uh, from Manhattan, he had gone to Manhattan to, to see his, his mother, who was there. Mm-hmm. His, his mother and father were divorced, and his mother was staying in Manhattan, not far from where the Clearies were staying, where their, their place in Manhattan. So it, it seems that, ironically, Cleary and Jean were on actually the same train coming from uh, 
Manhattan to Haverstraw. And then uh, Gene spoke with Mrs. Cleary, and Mrs. Cleary said, yeah, it'll be okay. Or, you know, you, you should go see him in the office right now. So he did. That's when he walked in, and Cleary faces him down with a handgun and uh, shoots him three times, and then a fourth time while he's lying on the floor. Shot him in the neck. As if that isn't enough, you have this young man shot by one of the most powerful men in the region. And from here, the scandal and malfeasance really begins, right? Yeah. Well, and all of this points to the speculation that there was uh, definitely a conspiracy because instead of being arrested, Cleary had himself escorted to the courthouse in New City and bailed out immediately. The gun that was used to shoot Gene was not accounted for. It was reconstructed at an investigation that happened after the trial that the gun was spirited away through three or four underlings and the the claim being made at the trial that this was a gun that just happened to be lying around in the office and in his rage and temporary insanity, quote-unquote, Cleary just picks up this gun and shoots without really knowing what he's doing. That was his defense. However, there there was another gun in Cleary's safe, his own handgun, and there were no witnesses to tell which gun it was. There, There probably was a witness, but nobody who would testify against Cleary in court. That's the other thing. The, the, the testimony and uh, the, the jury, that they were all very well controlled by Cleary. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and our topic today is the Cleary Newman murder of 1914. My guest by phone is Gene Newman, the grandnephew of the victim, who is the namesake, Gene Newman. So for Gene Newman's father, Fred Newman, having been uh, the editor of the newspaper and certainly having having had run-ins with the Clearies, he knew that it was going to be difficult to get justice. It would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get actual justice. Because all of the major law enforcement personnel were in Cleary's pocket. I mean, he they exactly. were, you know, so, but, you know, despite that, Fred Newman did do what he could to get justice. Right, right. And he, he was able to hire an attorney, Comeski, who was one of the prominent ones and who was deeply associated with this political machine. The DA was associated with Cleary and, and the political machine. So we have a case where the, the prosecution is not really trying very hard to prosecute. The murder takes place in July. The trial begins in December of 1914. So tell us about that trial and what took place. Okay. It was a short trial. The witnesses that were called, there were character witnesses against Gene Newman who were allowed to to make vicious allegations, totally unfounded, and not be challenged. They, They weren't even really challenged by the prosecutor, by Gagan. It was told that actually some so-called evidence of impropriety was handed over to the defense by Gagan himself. In the end, it was said, and this is one of the big quotes in the paper, that no more effort had been made made to show that Gene Newman was a, a good boy than if a dog had been shot down. 
Uh, it was clearly stacked against him, and it, it all culminated with extremely melodramatic scene of Anna Cleary being brought into the courtroom, being called to testify for the defense, for her father, and as she goes in, Cleary very overdramatically throws his arms around her, starts crying, has to be pulled away bodily, sat down, and um, so this whole scene obviously has a great impact on the jury and on everyone in the courtroom. All of this is being covered very closely by the media of the time. All the papers had had reporters there. They had hired a, a special car to uh, take the stories from uh, the courtroom in New City to the telegraph office, I think it was, mm-hmm. Yeah, in, which was in Congress. It was a really early case of a media circus-type trial. You know, one of the first ones. People couldn't get enough of it. You, you can find articles in California, Indiana. I mean, this was a huge story, and the press just couldn't get enough of this of this story. So as you said, it was a quick trial, and the end result was an acquittal for William Cleary. Isn't that correct? Yeah. It, all signs point to the fix being in. It, and it was so obvious that the judge publicly condemned the verdict, Judge Morehauser, and Fred, Gene's father, almost immediately petitioned for uh, an investigation into the trial. And it was clear that, that uh, the prosecutor, Gagan, presented an inept prosecution and seems to have been, in fact, working for Cleary, as I said, allowing the unfounded accusations against the victim, making uh, the trial against the victim putting him on trial rather than the killer. There are several witnesses who could have refuted the the temporary insanity claim of Cleary by testifying, by by challenging the testimony that he was just insane. People who rode with him on that train um, who said, no, he he was pretty much his normal self, just kind of drunk. So none of this was was brought out. It was a clearly inept prosecution. And when the verdict is announced, all the, the spectators are, they start cheering and throwing hats in the air. So, you know, clearly a, a, a travesty of justice. The petition to investigate the trial to the governor did turn up failures and irregularities. Yes, and to his credit, the governor at the time, Governor Whitman, mm-hmm. Charles Whitman, proceeded with the investigation and saw it through to the end. Unfortunately, he didn't convict anybody of of any major malfeasance. He did convict the the three or four people who helped spirit uh, the murder weapon away, violating gun laws and and so forth. But that was as far as it went. Commission was, was basically useless except that it led to an investigation of Cleary's financial dealings. And right. That's what yeah. finally caught Cleary. It's interesting that this seems to happen, that it ends up that greed gets some of these people at the end. And isn't that the case with, with Cleary? Well, yeah. Like, you know, they say um, Capone, they, they, they got him for, for not paying his taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, can, you can talk about OJ and uh, other analogous type cases. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of the bright side is that once the embezzlement the financial misdeeds that uh, that came to light in the investigation, 
once uh, once Cleary was brought up on charges on those, he didn't have his old friends anymore. That political machine was dead. It was it was blown up at that point. And and Cleary ends up common. Well, he still had money. I mean, he, he he tried to escape by traveling to Cuba, Bermuda, all the way to California. He finally gets tracked down in in Washington D.C., where they bring him in for conviction. And just about exactly a year from the, the date of his trial and acquittal, uh, he was convicted of, of fraud and sent to Sing Sing, directly across the river from Nyack. Yes, exactly. And what about the rest of the people involved? Well, after unsuccessfully, it, in the end, trying to get actual justice for his son, Fred ends up moving himself to New York City, living basically in obscurity, uh, for only about 10 years more, he died in 1925. Cleary, uh, I don't know, six or seven years uh, in prison. I don't remember exactly how much time, but he, he had no political career left. By the way, Gagan had no political career left um, either, mm-hmm. even though he was technically exonerated by the commission. Cleary also went to New York City, I think Brooklyn and uh, they say he uh, he had set up a tailor shop, and that's how he whiled away his remaining years. No record at all that I can see of, of Anna's child, what became of that. It's told that Anna remained in Haverstraw, but, you know, never married again, and was like the stereotypical spinster librarian, which it, it is possible as a child I might have even gone into the library when she was there. In my research, I went into Ancestry.com and actually found a death record for an Anna Cleary Newman in Los Angeles, California. So it's, it's possible she ended up uh, moving across the country. Date of that death certificate was 1976. This is an, an incredible story uh, for an outsider who is interested in history or anybody but for you, as uh, you know, this is your family. This is your legacy. This is your family story. So, tell us a little bit about how how this how it feels to learn about to have learned about this and to continue to research it. The personal side for you. Well, it it, it struck me like a ton of bricks. No question about it. And I wrote some things on it. Uh, I sent one article to. Uh, a historical magazine, and which decided not to print it. I just kind of put the whole thing aside for a while, but, you know, it's one of those things that don't let you go. It, it, it's my own name. Actually, you know, my, my, it's my father's name as well, and I, I, I did learn that there was some opposition within the family to him passing that name on, and I now I, I, I understand that, and I, but I wear it proudly. But it is, uh, it, it is a painful thing to carry around and i've gone back and forth with just forgetting it and trying to on on the other hand do as much as i can to publicize it or or whatever and finally a year ago well last summer when the hundredth anniversary of the shooting came around i really felt an imperative to do something to get it on the record Uh, at least to get this back onto the historical record. So I contacted the Rockland Times. They're 
great reporter, Cheryl Slavin, wrote a fantastic article that covered it, and I think that's how you got a hold of the, the information. Absolutely. The, the article in the Rockland County Times was outstanding and very well researched, and that really was how it piqued my interest, and I'm delighted that you agreed to come on the program and talk about it, because uh, it's one thing for a a reporter to write about it. It's another thing for direct descendant of people involved to speak about it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us about it. I know that this has been a fa- for me. It's been fascinating. I'm sure with our listeners, they will have enjoyed it and, and will continue to to listen as we keep our archive broadcasts available. So um, Gene Newman, grand nephew of the victim of the Eugene Newman William Cleary murder of 1914. Thank you so much. We're out of time, but thank you so much for being here to to are, give us your thoughts. You are entirely welcome. It's entirely my pleasure, and I'm grateful, extremely grateful to you for uh, putting the story in the historical record. Absolutely. I hope you will tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History. Uh, that will be on Monday, November 16th, right after the Stephen Meredith Show at 10, 10 a.m. We'll be speaking with Brenda Ross, the author of a new historical novel entitled Bibsy, which takes a peek into a corner of Rockland history that's been little explored, up the beach in Haverstraw. Set in the 1950s, Bibsy captures a community being impacted by suburbanization and the importance of fragility and family. I hope you will tune in. Again, that's Monday, November 16th. I hope you'll visit the Historical Society's website to find out about all of our upcoming events and programs, including the Pipe Organs of Central Rockland, a day trip throughout uh, Central Rockland, and that's going to be later in the month of November. And our current exhibition, The 50 Years of Rockland, is in its final days. It's open through November 1st. So check our website for the Times Exhibition Hours and other programs. That web address is www.rocklandhistory.org and of course you can always call us at 845-634-9629 you can find us on Facebook we have a growing number of friends there we tweet on Twitter and you can find us on Tumblr as Crossroads of Rockland History has a blog and don't forget that our broadcasts are archived at rocklandhistory.org just go to our landing page and type radio program in the search box I'm Claire Sheridan. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. Mm-hmm.